Welcome to the latest on the law, a podcast of the Boston Bar Association. The Commonwealth's premier legal association, the BBA, is home to over 15,000 members and 140 institutional partners consisting of law firms, corporations, government agencies, legal aid organizations, and law schools. Visit us at bostonbar.org to learn more. And welcome, everybody, to the inaugural uh, presentation in the BBA tax exempt organization section fundamental series for those new to practicing with tax exempt organizations or looking for a refresher. So I'm Eleanor Evans. I am uh, an attorney in the nonprofit practice at Hemingway and Barnes and have worked with nonprofit organizations throughout my legal career. And I'm joined here by Liz Reinhardt and I'll let Liz take it from here. Thanks very much, Eleanor, and great to be with everybody this afternoon. Um, I, yes, my name is Liz Reinhardt. I have a practice in Concord working exclusively with nonprofit organizations. And my background also includes um, early in my career, about 10 years in the Division of Public Charities at the Massachusetts Attorney General's Office, which is the key charities regulator in Massachusetts. So I bring sort of a regulatory compliance and best practice lens to the work I do. We're delighted to join you today in this first of six series sessions, pardon me, sessions in the fundamental series. And we're gonna talk about today, um, an agenda that's really intended to give you some background concepts and vocabulary with which to understand what does it mean to be a charity, the distinction between private foundations and public charities, other considerations and advising clients that um, you may work with who are interested in establishing a nonprofit organization or practicing with organizations. So the place to start for this topic is typically the first question that you're likely to discuss with a client. You know, what, what is the appropriate legal entity to house the mission or purpose that the client would like to advance? And it's important to start with really a distinction between what a for-profit organization is and what a nonprofit organization is, because there are some attributes which are shared, and then there are others which are very specific to nonprofit organizations. So this is a chart that just tries to help tease out the differences, the key differences between the for-profit and the nonprofit sector. And the key element, which most of us understand, um, you know, on a fundamental basis is that a for-profit has owners and it is created to deliver profit to owners, whether it be a privately held corporation or a publicly traded corporation with um, shareholders, um, overall, the intent is to create profit and distribute that profit to owners versus nonprofits, which do not have owners per se. They do have members and they are stewarded by fiduciary boards, but they don't have owners entitled to share in the profits of the operations of the nonprofit. The operations for these kinds of entities vary too. A for-profit is operated for the benefit of its shareholders and owners, and a for-profit board acts with that fiduciary responsibility versus the nonprofit requirement that a nonprofit organization is operated for the benefit of its charitable class. 
and to advance its mission or purpose. On the for-profit side, a for-profit is legally able to generate a profit. On the nonprofit side, nonprofits are legally able to generate a profit. In fact, it's probably useful to consider nonprofits as mission-driven businesses. Nonprofits operate and have business functions. They can and should generate a process for, for profit for financial stability. The difference is that that profit gets plowed back into operations and mission advancement rather than being sent out to owners. Generally, on, a, on the for-profit size, a director has a duty to maximize shareholder value. There's some nuance to that and some newly created types of corporate entities, but the overall fiduciary duty is usually to maximize shareholder value versus on the nonprofit side, the fiduciary obligation to protect the charitable assets and use them in furtherance of the mission or purposes of the organization. On the for-profit side, again, profit is passed to its owners. On the nonprofit side, profit doesn't pass to owners or members or fiduciary board members. This does not mean, however, that a nonprofit can't pay earned fair and reasonable and competitive compensation for work that's actually done for the nonprofit. And finally, the for-profit pays taxes on its income. On the nonprofit side, one of the advantages to nonprofit formation is tax avoidance at the federal and state level, generally corporate income tax avoidance. Um, not all nonprofits are exempt, but most are, and that's a matter of tax classification under federal IRS law. Finally, on the nonprofit side, in some um, categories of tax-exempt organizations, contributions may be tax-deductible for the donor. And that depends, again, in part on the type of nonprofit that um, you might be forming or assisting a client with, and we'll go into more detail about that. So, as I mentioned, one of the important sort of aspects to consider when profiting in practicing in this area is nonprofit terminology. And so we're going to talk as we move through this presentation about some basic terminology that comes up when working with clients around formation or advising uh, nonprofit organizations. And these terms um, vary from the very general to the more specific. So a nonprofit organization is one which is created, it's a legal entity created for nonprofit versus for-profit purposes. A nonprofit may be tax exempt. So tax exemption, which is a federal tax status, applies to various categories of nonprofit legal entities, which are created at the state level. And we'll talk about the difference between the state and federal elements of creating a nonprofit organization. The term public charity is a, is a good illustration of the way that this kind of terminology uh, does require some specificity for legal purposes. So on the federal side, public charity is a tax status that applies to certain tax-exempt nonprofits versus a private foundation classification. At the state level, Public charity is a term used in Massachusetts and in various states to denote a particular type of nonprofit organization with charitable purposes. So when using this term, it's important to consider whether you're using it for 
federal tax exempt purposes or state law application. So we're going to start with describing federal tax classification at a, at a broad level. Often this is what brings a client in with some information about how they like to structure a nonprofit organization. And they are generally familiar with the federal tax classification flowing from the IRS code around 501c categories. And in particular, a founder who wants to create a charitable entity will often be familiar with 501c3 classification, which is the classification of tax exempt entities, which both are exempt from corporate income tax and also can offer tax deductibility to donors. There is tax deductibility available in, in another tax classification for, for um, funds which are held for charitable purposes, but generally the 501c3 section is the section which provides um, tax exemption and donor deductibility for charitable organizations meeting IRS charitable qualifications. What people are sometimes less familiar with is the fact that 501c3 C contains a variety of classifications that nonprofit organizations can fit into. And among the 501C classifications is the benefit of tax exemption, although not donor deductibility. So choosing which tax status um, is appropriate under the circumstance really depends on what a client wants to do and why. And there are basic questions that can sort of tease out which the best classification would be. That includes expected sources of funds and also whether the client in creating the entity is interested in participating in political campaigns or lobbying, both of which um, are, are carefully treated for 501c3 classification. And in fact, that classification permits no political campaigns. So an example in this situation is the difference between a 501c3 charitable organization and a 501c4 social welfare organization, which is tax exempt, both categories are tax exempt, but the C4 is able to engage in more lobbying than a C3. Conversely, it does not accept uh, funds for which donors can take a deduction. So sort of thinking through what the purposes and activities of the organization are going to be first permits you to then seed the underlying founding documents for the corporation to meet these specific tax exempt classifications. And also just to, if I might jump in, sure. some of the other examples of 501c organizations are um, 501c5s, which are unions, um, 501c6s, which are business leagues and chambers of commerce, trade associations, 501c7, social clubs. So there are a range of other organizations. And sometimes when, um, you know, as Liz indicated, when you're helping a client decide what type of organization to be, it you may want to have a discussion about the pros and cons of the different types of entities. Definitely. And I think this slide um, nicely illustrates that, Eleanor, because, you know, we sort of think, I think often founders think in terms of 501c3 charitable organizations, but actually that's a, a subset of the larger universe of nonprofits. 
And this um, diagram nicely illustrates that. And one thing to point out about this slide is the source of the information, which is the Bruce Hopkins Law of Tax-Exempt Organizations volume, this in its eighth edition. So Bruce Hopkins is a dean in, in this area and his, um, his volume, The Law of Tax-Exempt Organizations is really a Bible for practitioners in this area. Um, and in that is very detailed description of the different attributes for these different 501c organizations. So, so um, as indicated, often a client will come in wanting to start a charitable organization. And to the extent that that is the goal, there are three basic attributes for a five for 501c3 qualification and for qualification for charitable purposes at the state level as well. So one way to think about qualification of, as, as a 501c3 organization is a nonprofit entity, legal entity, perhaps a corporation, perhaps a trust, could also be an unincorporated association, but organized for nonprofit operation, meeting the charitable definition accorded in 501c3 and serving an indefinite portion of the public. So in order to qualify for 501c3 status, the organization's mission must fall within one of the following exempt purposes. And note that these are extremely broad categories. So religious organizations qualify as 501c3 organizations, charitable in the um, sense that we generically understand that term, but has been far well-developed in both IRS guidance and federal, the code and federal and state law. But take that as the general understanding of charitable activity of an organization. Scientific purposes, testing for public safety, literary purposes, educational purposes, and prevention of cruelty to children or animals. So one of the real, um, you know, interesting exercises in creating these organizations is understanding to some degree of specificity what the founder's purpose is in creating the organization, and then both analyzing that for purposes of um, meeting this definition for 501c3 purposes, and also being sure that in creating the founding document for the entity, the intent and how the organization intends to fit into this definition is clearly obvious in the founding document, which will ultimately be submitted to the IRS for their review and confirmation that the organization will qualify for C3 purposes. And one thing I might say on the list of purposes is that although broad, it is a specific list of purposes and you have to fit into one of those categories or one or more of those categories. Um, and the IRS, um, the 501c3 regulations do spell out some more detail about some of these different categories. So for example, charitable includes um relief of the poor and distressed among other categories. And that's sort of one of the kind of typical longstanding definitions of charity through case law and otherwise. 
But I do find frequently that clients come to me and want to form a 501c3, or in some cases have already formed a 501c3 without the advice of counsel. And it turns out that what they're doing is, or what they want to do is not uh, tax exempt or would not qualify as tax exempt under 501c3. So for example, if someone comes to you and they want to um, promote green, you know, uh, environmentally friendly businesses that maybe are helping with climate change. Um, and just keep in mind that although that sounds like a good societal purpose, that's not necessarily a 501c3 purpose. And so, um, you know, providing assistance to businesses, no matter what type of business they are, generally is not a C3 purpose because there are obviously a lot of people who and businesses that do that in a for-profit way. Um, and so if you were providing classes or training to people starting green businesses, then that might qualify as educational under 501c3. Or if you were working with low-income people to start green businesses where those people couldn't otherwise get financing, then that might qualify under as charitable through relief of the poor and distressed. But it's just really important to keep in mind that not all good ideas and, and socially beneficial um, programs are necessarily qualifying for 501c3. Right. So I, I totally agree with that. And I think one of the interesting things about practice in this area is that as I think as founders have evolved in their in their thinking, very often they're interested in what feels like philanthropy without walls, meaning they have a mission and they're committed to creating an entity to advance it. But as Eleanor says, it doesn't necessarily, that vision doesn't necessarily fit nicely within the cubby holes, basically, that the IRS has established for qualification as a C3 organization. So one of the things that we see really with increasing regularity is an interest in combining different kinds of legal entities all in service of a particular vision. So to Eleanor's point, green business or green energy. And that sometimes it takes very clear thinking. I completely agree about how to um, evaluate the operations of the C3 to make sure they fit this classification, but often also thinking about companion organizations, which might contribute to the overall advancement of a mission. And that starts to get um, somewhat complicated under the 501c3 rules. So it's a topic that will likely be part of conversation if you join further sessions in this program. And also I might just note too, and I think this will come up in later sessions in this series, uh, that it's important to talk with people who want to start a nonprofit about, you know, that there are compliance obligations that we're not going to really get into today, but that can be quite detailed and onerous and can cost a significant amount of money. And so it's important to know, or for founders to think about, you know, are they prepared to take on those obligations? And if not, you know, there may be other organizations out there that are doing similar things that they could join forces with. Or if it's a matter of donating funds, you know, they could donate money to specific organizations or donate funds to a donor advised fund and then from there to other organizations. 
basically being very good advice to the unwary in the sense that just because somebody comes in and says they want to start a charity doesn't mean that the analysis shouldn't start more at the beginning, which is what is the goal and what is the what sort of a legal plan to achieve that goal. And that achieving the goal does not necessarily mean starting a brand new standalone 501c3 organization. There are lots of other ways to collaborate to meet goals that don't necessarily bring with it the governance and regulatory infrastructure that's required of C3s. So just to summarize, the basic attributes of a charitable organization qualifying for 501c3 tax exemption under the, the IRS code are tests, the primary purpose test, this must be a nonprofit with charitable purposes operated in a way that exclusively advances purpose as opposed to um, either carrying out other purposes for which it has not been classified under C3 or for purposes which provide um, benefit to uh, somebody not in the class of people who are going to be benefited by the corporation or to private owners or shareholders. So one of the things, again, this is all geared towards the strategy of creating an underlying state entity, which we'll talk about at the end of the program, to house a mission and purposes for a founder or founding group, and to take in those organizational documents um, steps to ensure that as the corporation then seeks, or the trust, the legal entity then seeks tax exemption at the IRS, qualification for under the whatever 501c uh, category has been selected is clear on the face of the documents. So one of the things we know about classification for 501c3 purposes is that a 501c3 organization must, and, and this is the um, IRS test, use its assets exclusively in furtherance of its mission. So one of the rules that guide 501c3 organizations is that they may not engage in any substantial lobbying, the theory there being that lobbying is not advancing the mission of the organization. And so to the extent the organization must use its assets exclusively in furtherance of that mission, any lobbying activity, which is permitted in small doses, must be insubstantial. In, and at the IRS level, the, there, there are financial formulas that kick in in order to um, meet the lobbying tests and determine whether the level of financial expenditure for lobbying activities is indeed insubstantial for purposes of the test. And um, the other thing, which is very clear for 501c3 classification, is that the organization may not participate in political activity. And so one of the things that we expect when we create these formation documents are sections in a trust or in a nonprofit corporate um, articles of organization or certificate of incorporation that expressly state an understanding about the lobbying requirements and bar political campaign activity. And this is important for, for corporate formation, but it's also pragmatic in the sense that when the organization then goes to the IRS for classification, 
IRS agents read every word of those applications for tax exempt status. And if they can quickly scan a document and see that the substantial lobbying um, prohibition is met and see expressly that the documents um, don't permit political campaign activity, then you know the route towards final exemption is easier in terms of that uh, inspection of the application. So one of the things that is important, particularly for 501c3 classification, is an understanding, again, that charitable assets must be used exclusively in furtherance of purpose and may not be used for particular private benefit or inurement. And this flows um, both from the expression of mission and the attributes, again, nonprofit, meeting the definition of charitable activity, serving an indefinite portion of the public. So an indefinite portion of the public um, is expressed. It doesn't need to be the, the whole public. It can be expressed as a class within the public, but it is not expressed in a way that will confer benefit on particular individuals or classes of or named individuals. So a good example of a situation in which a charitable organization will not meet the um, indefinite portion of the public test and may run into difficulties in terms of conferring public benefit on a class outside the charity are two situations. One situation um, might be found in a family with wealth who might create a trust for the purposes of providing educational funding for members of the family. That versus a charitable trust, which may be established to provide scholarships to, for example, high school graduates from three local towns, but, are no, but the purposes of that trust is not to provide personal benefit to named individuals who control the foundation. So an a indefinite class, a charitable class can be fairly narrow. We actually have in Massachusetts an organization created centuries ago for the benefit of the widows and orphans of whaling captains um, that would qualify because widows and orphans of whaling captains are not identifiable as individuals versus um, a, a trust for the benefit of Mrs. Smith, who is the wife of a whaling captain. In terms of private inurement, this is a really important um, governance requirement for 501c3 organizations. And this is the, um, the rule at the IRS that gives rise to conflict of interest policies and procedures to ensure that the fiduciary duty of loyalty to the charitable organization is met. So private inurement means sending unearned private benefit, financial benefit to an insider in the organization, typically a member of the fiduciary board, an officer or a key executive within the organization. In order to qualify as a nonprofit for 501c3 status, the 501c3 organization must make sure that it is not conveying private inurement to its insiders. The way the organization um, creates the discipline to avoid that is by adoption of a good conflict of interest policy and procedure in which financial transactions between insiders and the organization are disclosed. 
And to the extent that there is an interest in some kind of a financial or business transaction between an insider and the nonprofit, which is not per se illegal, the organization follows a careful process to ensure that conflict of interest does not um, create an ability for an insider to control decision-making. The um, So that this is a topic, governance is a topic that's gonna come up in this series, but it's important to note that the IRS private inurement rules, which are important to follow for, um, to stay exempt and to avoid a penalty and tax structure, get baked into the governance of the organization through conflict of interest policy and procedure. And conflict of interest policy and procedure is a key focus area for regulatory enforcement and sector best practices. So again, these are attributes which are important for a 501c3 to be particularly alert to and are woven through governance best practices and um, fiduciary duty requirements in a charitable organization. And also, as I'll talk about in a few slides, um, there these rules are embodied for private foundations, which we'll discuss in a little bit in the right. form of what are called self-dealing rules and, and taxes on self-dealing. And then for public charities, which is under the federal tax code definition of that in the so-called excess benefit or intermediate sanctions rules. And so there's a different um, scheme for each, whether you're a private foundation or a public charity as to which of these apply, uh, right. which we're not gonna go into the details of that today, but just to keep in mind that there's a set of rules that apply to each. Right. Oh, wait, if you could just back up on the private benefit piece. So um, I think Liz provided a good example of, you know, private, uh, of sort of the, some of the distinctions between private benefit and um, benefiting the public. I mean, it, this is something to always be alert for because I feel like this issue comes up for the clients that I'm dealing with quite frequently. Um, so even if the organization gets set up and it's, you know, totally its purposes, no problem qualifying under 501c3. So um, this issue of private benefit can occur um, just if the organization isn't being careful in watching what it's doing. So for example, say you have a um, research organization that's doing research on uh, climate change and they do that and they provide their research, make it available to the public and to universities and scholars and the, just the public at large, including companies, anybody who wants it. Um, that is, you know, falls within scientific, falls within educational. Uh, but the key there is that they're making this data available to and the results of their research available to the general public. But some, but it may come up that a uh, company may say, hey, this information that you're researching is really helpful and could be really helpful to us if you if we could hire you to do some research specifically for us that you don't make available to the public. And in that case, uh, that would be providing a private benefit to that company uh, because you're using organization resources to provide that benefit. And so an organization needs to be careful that it's only providing private benefit in an incidental way, which the IRS defines as in two ways, um, quantitatively incidental, meaning just a small part of what the organization does or a small part of a particular activity of the organization. And it also means qualitatively, meaning sort of a byproduct of 
the its otherwise charitable mission. So there are some circumstances in which an organization may, as part of its public facing activities, provide some benefits to private individuals, but that is just a, it can't separate that out in providing its benefits. So anyway, those are things to just be aware of both when you're thinking of setting up the organization and as the organization continues to operate. So again, this is a, a slide getting at the concept of charitable class and avoiding um, operations or financial arrangements which benefit insiders or, as Eleanor mentioned, um, private interests of others outside the organization. So the concept of charitable class being another way of unpacking the public versus the private benefit concept. A charitable class is a group of individuals that may properly receive assistance from a charitable organization. Again, it can be a subset. Set. It doesn't need to be the whole public that the charity is serving, but a, um, a qualified charitable class within the larger public. And a charitable class must be either large enough that potential beneficiaries cannot be individually identified, i.e. the Smith family relatives receiving financial scholarship assistance, or sufficiently indefinite that the community as a whole, rather than a pre-selected group of individuals, benefits when the charity provides assistance. So one note here that's really com comes up time and again are situations in which there might be an unfortunate uh, situation in which a firefighter um, dies in the line of duty and in a community outrush of sympathy uh, fund will be established for the benefit of that firefighter's family. That is a situation in which, although generous, the fund itself will not qualify as a 501c3 organization because it is formed for the benefit of a particular family. And so donations to that fund, unless it is has taken steps to somehow enlarge the charitable class that might be benefited, will not be tax deductible and, and they won't be eligible for 501c3 exemption in that situation. This comes up this comes up over and over again, unfortunately, and it's just something to be very clear about. And it's an, this is an opportunity to say also that um, the both the IRS website, irs.gov, and the Attorney General's Division of Public Charities website have terrific resources for um, analyzing and understanding situations and you know, sort of thinking through some of these basic concepts. And in particular, the question about um, individual funds uh, and how to treat them is, I know, dealt with on the AG's website. Okay, I'm gonna turn this over to you, Eleanor. Great, thanks. So as we've been alluding to throughout this presentation, within the IRS definition of 501c3, there are two main categories private foundations, and public charities. And so as indicated here on the slide, a private foundation is the default characterization. Um, and unless the organization applies and obtains 501c3 status as uh, a school, a church, a hospital, or certain other categories of um, in sort of categorical uh, status as a public charity, 
based on what the organization is doing. Um, so basically, unless you're a school, church, or hospital, or one of those other categorical public charities, you have to earn your public charity status by getting enough funding from the general public. And so these rules were passed in 1969 when Congress had seen uh, abuses in um, the private foundation realm, and they actually create or in abuses by families creating, you know, their own charities. Um, and so they created this distinction between public charities and private foundations to distinguish between uh, private foundations on the one hand that receive funding from a much um, narrower band of people and that have fewer people involved with them and public charities on the other hand that have enough funding from the public and also have in some cases have oversight and influence by the public in their governance to justify public charity classification and so there are um within so there like i said there's the categorical um type of public charity and then this the income test based public charity and there are two types of uh, income tests for that um, one is for organizations that rely on donations and contributions for their main source of support. And the other is for organizations that have significant program revenue, such as, say, a theater that gets most of its revenue from ticket sales or a museum that gets most of its revenue from um, admission fees. And uh, so there's a distinction between the two and each of the public support tests are quite complicated. So we're going to leave that for another day to really delve into the, you know, how one qualifies as a public charity under these income tests and maintains that qualification. A new organization has five years to demonstrate that it is a public charity. So when you apply for 501c3 status, you know, if the organization um, you know, doesn't intend to be a private foundation, then you want to make sure that you're checking one of the boxes for being a public charity. And if you're checking one of those income boxes, then you have, like I said, five years to demonstrate that. Once, and assuming you do demonstrate that at that time, then the organization needs to monitor to make sure that it still is continuing to be a public charity. And you do this on the IRS um, Form 990 Schedule A. And so the tax preparer will help the charity, can help the charity see what it's, um, how it calculates its public support test. And each year there will be a percentage of public support that the charity gets or, you know, demonstrates. Um, and so especially if, and usually the, um, the basic idea is that the charity is supposed to get at least a third of its support um, in the form of so-called public support. On the first test that I mentioned where the charity is relying on donations as the main um, source of public support, uh, of support, uh, if the organization doesn't get at least one third of its support from public sources under that test, it can still qualify as a public charity if it meets the so-called 10% facts and circumstances test, which gets more into, you know, does it have, is it trying to raise funds from the public? Does it have, you know, public involved in its governance and some other factors there? Um, so, but the key thing is that you want to monitor this because if you lose uh, your public, if you cease being publicly supported, then you'll become a private foundation and subject to a bunch of the rule, I mean, to all the rules that we're about to talk about. Um, and so this is particularly important for small organizations 
that may not may file the so-called form 990N, which doesn't require detailed financial information or a Schedule A, uh, because those folks can so tip into private foundation status without even realizing it. Um, so there are a couple, there's another kind of category called supporting organizations, which is um, a type of organization that supports one or more public charities and has to meet certain tests to qualify as uh, in the public charity bucket. Um, so we're not going to go into those today, but that is another option. And then there are um, donor advised funds, which are funds that are um, set up by, by public charities that people can you know, donate money to um, and make gifts out of those funds where the, the, the donors uh, donate the, fund and the funds and then get advisory privileges over the donations. Um, they don't have the same degree of control that they would if they were donating to a private foundation that they set up, uh, but they do get to advise and the, the fund sponsors usually do honor their requests as to how to, or recommendations as to how to um, how to give the money away. So why does it matter? Uh, because as you'll see on the next slide, there are um, consequences to being a private foundation that are more onerous than for a public charity. Um, Liz, if you, uh, great, thanks. Um, so as you'll, there are, um, Donors to public charities get um, more favorable deduction rules than donors to private foundations. And there's a chart on the next slide that we'll talk about that in a moment. Um, but also there's a um, heightened code of conduct there, uh, including um, taxes on self-dealing that we alluded to in a prior slide, and then so a bunch of other requirements that I'll get to in a moment, as well as an excise tax on investment income that can make it be um, you know, significantly better to be a public charity than a private foundation. But one advantage to private foundations can be this degree of flex having more flexibility and control uh, because you, um, you know, the, there doesn't have to be a broad or you know, public involved on the board or even, um, so for example, when you apply to the IRS for C3 status, if the organization is gonna be a public charity, often the IRS wants to see at least three board members, um, even though that there's no IRS requirement for that. Um, whereas if you are setting up a private foundation, you know, an individual could be the, um, the donor and settler of a, charitable trust and be the only trustee, uh, and that would fly with the IRS. Um, and then the, um, and the control, you know, with the private foundation, um, and with that more limited governance, um, the, the people involved would have more control over how the funds are donated and how they're invested and that sort of thing. Um, but that degree of control comes with the downside, which is various rules that I'm going to be talking about in subsequent slides. Um, so um, as I indicated that the tax law encourages people to support um, public charities more than private foundations because of the more favorable uh, deduction rules that we'll talk about in a moment. Um, and well, actually also on the bottom of the slide here. So 
there are different percentage limitations for deductions. So if you're a public charity, um, anyway, it's, it's more generous and there's a chart on the next slide, which I'll talk about in a moment. But one thing to note is that contributions to either public charities or private foundations must be properly substantiated in the um, the response, it's a responsibility of the donor to make sure that they substantiate their donations. Um, and then also the, in order to be deductible, the donations must be made to a domestic charitable organization. There are ways, uh, certainly both public charities and private foundations can have their own operations overseas. And in some circumstances, um, one can set up a so-called friends of organization to um, raise funds for the purposes of a foreign charity, uh, uh, and wh whereby a um, you know a U.S. charity does that, and there are specific rules and requirements around that that um, that I advise my clients about, uh, but that can be a little tricky. But it's it is an option that's available to you. So um, here's a chart that shows the differences in. Um, deductibility and the amount that can be deducted for um, public charities versus private foundations. And the at the top of the page there where it says public charity slash POF, that POF stands for private operating foundations, which is a subcategory of private foundations that we're not going to get into today, but has uh, slightly more favorable rules than pri regular private foundations that do not operate their own programs. Um, so as you can see that a public charity, um, that if somebody makes a donation of cash to a public charity and only donates cash in that year and doesn't make non-cash gifts, then they can deduct up to 60% of their adjusted gross income um, for that donation uh, or for donations that you know, where they make large donations. And often these maximum annual deduction amounts really are going to apply more to you know, high income taxpayers. But um, as you may have heard from the news these days, though, that you hear that um, that more and more, unfortunately, more and more giving is happening um, through high income taxpayers. I mean, I'm glad that they're giving, but the problem is that fewer people on the lower end of the scale are giving. Um, but these, um, these um, maximum uh, annual deductions are good to know about when you are dealing with people making quite large donations to charities. Um, whereas I, you can see with the gifts of cash that if it, they're making this making a donation to a private foundation, they're limited to um, to thirty percent of their adjusted gross income that they could deduct for the year. Um, Anyway, there are other, and you can see on the chart here in each category, whether it's publicly traded stock or gifts of non-cash property and that's, that aren't publicly traded stock, um, that it's always more favorable to give to a public charity than to a private foundation. So I mentioned that there are a set of rules that apply to private foundations that are more onerous than to public charities. So these include um, annual distribution requirements. So you probably heard that um, private foundations have to annually distribute 5% of the value of roughly of their, um, their assets that are not otherwise used to carry out their exempt purposes. Um, and so that and that is that amount is calculated 
it, it's based on the prior year's assets. So at the beginning of a new fiscal year, you would the foundation would know how much it needs to distribute for that year. But if the foundation does not distribute that amount that it's required to, then there uh, then a tax applies on the undistributed amount. Um, also, there are the self-dealing rules that I mentioned. And so those rules are, as the slide indicates, uh, often non-intuitive. So they, so as a general matter, transactions between the private foundation and insiders, which the IRS, the code, the tax code and regulations calls disqualified persons. So transactions between the foundations and those folks um, are generally prohibited. There are some exceptions. Um, so for example, um, paying compensation or reimbursing expenses, uh, if um, as long as that reimbursement is reasonable or payment or reimbursement is reasonable and necessary to carrying out the foundation's exempt purposes, then that's okay. Uh, but um, you, that requires a determination that the compensation being paid is reasonable. Most other transactions are um, prohibited. So for example, leasing of property, if a founder of a private foundation owns an you know, owns an office building and they want to provide the foundation with space in the office building, they would have to do that on a, um, do that for free because leasing space to the foundation that, you know, to the founder's foundation would be a prohibited act of self-dealing. And so the reason that I'm saying the rules are non-intuitive is that in that case, um, say the founder decided, well, I want to rent some space in the office building to the foundation for less than fair market value, but I'm not going to do it for free. Um, you know, in the private, in a public charity context, that would be okay, um, as long as he went through certain procedures to determine that, and that, and that the amount being charged was less than fair market value. Uh, but in the case of a foundation, that would be a prohibited transaction. And like I said, there are very narrow exceptions. Um, foundations also have. Um, Additional requirements, if they are intending to make grants to individuals, um, there's a certain process that they have to go through. Either they have to um, disclose that in their initial um, 501c3 application, or they, if they didn't do it then and decide they want to make grants to individuals later, they need to file a separate form with the IRS, and, um, and which gives the, the IRS an opportunity to review their grant-making program to individuals and to Say, say if that is not a permissible program. Um, foundations that want to make grants to organizations other than public charities um, or, or to foreign charities have to do what's called exercise expenditure responsibility, or in the case of foreign charities, they can get something called an equivalency determination where the foreign charity is determined to be similar to a U.S. charity. Um, and those require some additional agreements and additional steps. Um, and then as compared to public charities, which are allowed to do an insubstantial amount of lobbying, private foundations are not allowed to do any lobbying. And if they do, they'll be subject to tax on that. Um, private foundations are also subject to some limitations on their investments. So they are... Um, the 
excess business holdings rules uh, are essentially there to prevent substantial ownership of a for-profit company. And so there are certain limits about how much uh, the private foundation and its disqualified persons together can hold with respect to certain corporation to corporations. Um, so for example, um, it, then that is that limit is 20% of the voting stock of a, of the corporation. So it's not just the foundation, but it's also the um, people, the disqualified people associated with it. Um, it can be a higher percentage if disinterested individuals control that corporation. So in other words, if it's a public corporation. Um, jeopardizing investments are investments that the IRS determines will jeopardize the um, foundation's ability to carry out its charitable purpose. So for these might include things like trading on margin or in commodity futures and um, just things that would be considered not prudent investments um, for, a fund, for an entity, uh, for a foundation. And as indicated on the slide, there are very um, expensive taxes if one violates these rules. So it's important to stay on top of them. And then finally, for my part of the presentation, there are taxes on tax exempt organizations um, in the form of uh, employment taxes. So like other employers, 501c3s do have to pay um, their share of Medicare um, and um, Social Security taxes. If um, the, And also they have to, well, if you're purchasing sale, if you're purchasing items in Massachusetts, you can get um, sales tax exemption if you're a 501c3. Um, if you don't get that exemption, then you will have to pay sales taxes on items you purchase. Also, if you sell items um, then in the regular course of business, then you have to collect and remit sales taxes on those. Um, you There may be property taxes. Um, you know, Again, in Massachusetts, there's an exemption for um, in certain cases for 501c3s on real estate um, that they own and occupy. Um, but in, if you don't meet those criteria, then you will owe taxes on real estate and perhaps other forms of personal property. Unrelated business income taxes are if the organization is engaged, regularly engaged in a trade or business that's not substantially related to its exempt purposes um, and it um, you know receives net income from that, then it will owe tax on that income. Um, and then, like we've been talking about, there are those, the taxes that I just discussed about for private foundations. Um, and then for public charities, there can be some as well. And that 49.58 is what was the excess benefit uh, provision that I talked about earlier. And then finally, a private foundation will owe a tax on its net investment income of 1.39%. So um, thank you, Eleanor. So going back to the beginning, sort of conceptually, when we were talking about terminology and we talked about a charitable nonprofit, one of the things conceptually to keep in mind is that charitable is an umbrella term and it um, encompasses an organization whose purpose meets the definition of 501 to qualify as a 501c3 organization in any of the various categories that we um, showed you earlier. So for example, a church 
qualifies as a charitable organization. And as Eleanor just mentioned, there is a certain strategy beyond um, qualifying for tax exempt status as a 501c3 and also considering strongly whether you can qualify the organization as a public charity versus a private foundation, because generally um, there's more flexibility for the public charity. But in any event, the exercise starts with a discussion generally with a founder about the choice of legal entity, which will then go on to qualify through application to the IRS for 501c status. And the choice of entity, um, which is the threshold consideration, can involve uh, creating an unincorporated association, although these are rarer and rarer given liability concerns of founders. And, and so while parent-teacher organizations, for example, were almost universally unincorporated 20 years ago. Now, I would say probably the majority have sought corporation status because it's a liability protection. Uh, nonprofit corporations can be created under state law in any of the states. Um, they may be membership or non-membership corporations, meaning the corporation may be controlled by a fiduciary board, which is responsible and has authority to oversee operations of the corporation, or there may be reserve rights to make certain corporate decisions in a class of members who have voting rights. And the typical voting rights for members in that structure are election of the fiduciary board and some statutory uh, rights, including the right to approve merger and the right to approve amendment of the articles of incorporation for the corporation. Um, another choice of entity, which is popular for foundations who are often classified as private foundations are trusts and some of the other um, corporate options include LLCs, newer types of entities and B corporations, although um, it's important to know that there's a distinction between a benefit corporation, which may operate as a nonprofit, and B corporations, which are typically for-profits meeting certain criteria and getting a certification um, that suggests that they have more altruistic purposes and benefit and can benefit social activities as well as primarily um, sending profit to their owners or shareholders. And finally, when we advise clients thinking through the two parts of this, the state entity creation and then the application for exempt status, in sequence, roughly, it's really important to start with a discussion of the client's goals, likely source of funds, will they qualify as a public charity or will they be a private foundation? Do they have um, a mission in mind that would qualify for one of the C statuses? And indeed, should they be considering options to meet their goals other than creation of a new legal entity, which brings with it, as you can just tell from this threshold presentation, a considerable amount of governance and regulatory compliance obligations, particularly for C3 organizations. And as Eleanor mentioned earlier, donor advised funds are a nice vehicle for individuals who are interested in grant making, but don't want to create an entirely new trust or corporate structure in order to make grant making uh, to, to grant from. 
So in addition to understanding the client's goals, they, you know, really a, a good amount of time should be spent going over what it will mean once the organization, the nonprofit organization is created and particularly fiduciary duties, the founders, um, significant donors off in foundation cases, officers and senior managers take on when they become involved in operating a in particular, a 501c3 organization, prohibitions against private endowment. Again, this is the situation in which conflict of interest is involved. And although the rules for related party transactions are more relaxed for public charities than they are for private foundations, in any event, any kind of um, distribution of profit, which is unearned to insiders is prohibited. And there are significant compliance requirements that should be understood. So the ultimate question is, once you've explained it all, does the client still want to go ahead in creating a new entity or do they want to explore some other options um, before making that decision? Once that goal has been um, established, then it's important to start from the beginning to understand the purposes and, and mission of the organization and think in terms of ultimately what kind of federal tax classification the organization will seek. And so advising the client about creation of the legal entity, which vehicle would best meet their goals, a corporation or a trust, for example. At that point, once the state legal entity is created, um, the organization can obtain a tax identification number, which is basically a corporate social security number and is the number that's required to go ahead and open bank accounts, for example, and will be used in the federal IRS system to track the exempt organization's application and subsequent tax filings. The next step once the legal entity is created is to apply for recognition of tax exemption and the size of the organization's projected revenue for the first three years of operation will create options for using a streamlined application for recognition, the 1023-EZ form, or a much longer and more involved form called the Form 1023. Public charities, um, which include all 501c3 organizations operating or raising funds in the Commonwealth, as well as certain other 501c nonprofit organizations who might hold charitable funds, must then register with the Division of Public Charities and the Attorney General's office. Um, if the organization is going to solicit funds from the public, and solicitation is defined very broadly and includes, for example, grant applications, the organization needs to obtain a solicitation permit prior to um, soliciting, and that requires both registration and compliance with annual filing requirements in the Division of Public Charities. And also organizations can consider the need or utility of a tax exempt purchaser certificate from the Department of Revenue in Massachusetts, which will um, provide certain benefits for um, sales tax avoidance. Did you wanna chime in on that, Eleanor? I would just say on the solicitation of funds piece that sometimes it, makes, I mean, that it often makes sense to just apply with the Mass AG's office to um, register with the Mass AG's office as soon as you form, um, because it can take them a little while to process the application or the registration and to give you your solicitation certificate. Um, 
Although keep in mind that until you get your tax 501c3 status, you can't represent that you that the contributions will be deductible. Um, if you, assuming you apply for C3 status within the first 27 months after formation, the and the status is granted, it will be granted retroactively to the date of your formation, however. Um, and then also to note that if you're going to be soliciting funds in other states, 39 states, including Massachusetts um, and also including DC, uh, have solicitation require, uh, registration requirements. So you'll um, look into whether to comply or whether, you know, what compliance might be needed in which, in which states. And then, um, and sometimes that involves working with an outside firm to help the organization do that registration in other states. That's a really important point, I think, because multi-state compliance for nonprofit organizations um, really is a thicket of regulatory requirements um, because often state law will control in three compliance categories. If an organization has employees in states other than Massachusetts and multi-states, if an organization is um, doing business or operating in another state, and also, as Eleanor says, if, if a nonprofit C3 is soliciting funds in the other states, compliance often registration and um, filing compliance is necessary in all three of those um, activity categories. So multi-state, uh, this is a particular challenge now since we live in a virtual world and it is um, more and more common for organizations not to have a bricks and mortar operating um, center and also to have staff which are spread across not just the US but the world. And so thinking ahead and understanding multi-state compliance requirements and both the um, staff burden and also the financial cost of maintaining those necessary registration and reporting requirements for state law purposes is, is a significant operating consideration for, for uh, nonprofits. So thank you. It's been a pleasure to talk with you this afternoon. This is a slide that shows you a variety of resources that Eleanor and I think might be useful as you wade into this uh, area of practice. And in particular, I think the first two websites are remarkably useful. Um, they contain a lot of guidance, not just about what the requirements, the rules, the laws, and the requirements are, but also best practice um, materials. And I find particularly the irs.gov section, charities and nonprofits, is actually really useful and accessible for clients who are not, not who are non-lawyers, um, but can easily click through and understand, for example, the life cycle of a public charity and what obligations are going to be required for an, a nonprofit seeking and maintaining C3 status through its life cycle. So I hope this has been helpful to you. Thank you very much for your time. And um, I hope you enjoy the rest of this series. The next session is going to be a session on formation on December 20th. And hope you can join uh, the presenters then. Thank you. Great, thanks for joining us this afternoon.